0: Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Well, thanks so much for having me here. So good to be able to come and uh, worship with you guys at North. So it's been a few months since I've been at City Light in Glenelg I've been wanting to get out here the whole time. So thanks for having me. Um, And I'm super excited to get into uh, the Word today as well and get into Acts chapter 8. This is a Super exciting passage and a super significant passage as well in terms of the the story of God as presented in the Book of Acts. Uh, this is the first time uh, in the Book of Acts that we're actually hearing about stuff that's happening outside of Jerusalem and, and Judea. So the gospel has gone to Samaria, and we heard that um, I'm sure you guys heard that last week. As Philip has been uh, sent out after the persecution that's happened in Jerusalem, and he's heading out uh, to Samaria and is doing signs and wonders and preaching. The gospel. And, and this has all happened because uh, of the persecution that arose in Jerusalem uh, because of, or well, really sparked by, Stephen's speech. And so, Stephen in chapter 7 of Acts was uh, one of the guys that had been set aside to wait tables earlier in chapter 6. And he pretty much gets up in front of the chief priests and uh, all the Pharisees and he just speaks the truth of the gospel and he pretty much just condemns them and says, You know, just like your fathers denied the Holy Spirit, you're also denying the Holy Spirit. Uh, And the Pharisees just lose it, they go crazy, they start to yell at him and they cover their ears and scream and then they end up stoning him to death and he becomes the first martyr of the church and it sparks this huge persecution. And, And we're told that every single person other than the apostles, every person of the church was forced to flee and scatter all away from Jerusalem. Um, Super significant moment. And Philip is one of those people. And so we get this story, which is kind of zeroed in a little bit more on Philip. So Philip is actually also one of the guys that had been, uh, we're told, is full of the spirit and full of wisdom and was asked to wait tables as the apostles were trying to find people to do that in chapter 6. And now he is sent out preaching the gospel, doing signs and wonders uh, in Samaria. And we get to this story in chapter 8, and we're introduced to this guy called Simon. So I'm going to be reading... Uh, from Acts chapter 8, uh, starting at verse 9. So if you have a Bible, feel free to follow along. I'm using the, uh, the ESV. I'm not sure if that's what you've got uh, in the pews. But reading from Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 9, it says, But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and when they received and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. How about I pray for us, so why don't you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. We thank you that you have yeah, chosen to speak to us, Lord, that you are not a distant God, but that you're imminent and you're with us, uh, and you've chosen to give us uh, the very words of life in your scriptures, Lord. And we thank you that uh, you've promised to us that whenever your word goes out, it doesn't return to you empty. Lord, thank you that that is true of uh, us right now. Lord, as we hear the word preached, sure it won't return empty, Lord. So please work in us powerfully by your Holy Spirit, and we pray that you'd soften our hearts, make us willing to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, I just pray for me as well. I pray that you'd give me the words to say. Help me to just uh, to forget anything that's not going to be helpful for your people, Lord, and just give me the words uh, that will be beneficial for them. In Jesus' name. Amen. And so right from the beginning of this story, we're introduced to this guy called Simon, and we're told that he's practiced magic in the city for a long time, and that he's amazed the people of Samaria uh, with his magic. And it's obviously pretty uh, significant, because people are captivated by it. If you look in the, in the passage, it says uh, that they were saying about him that he is the power of God that is called Great which is a bit of a weird phrasing, but it's pretty much saying like, this guy is the power of God. Look at him. Look at the amazing magic that he's doing. And I don't know about you, but like, I read that and I just want to know what he's doing. Like I want to know what's happening. If people are looking at him and saying, this guy is the power of God. Look at this magic. It's obviously something pretty significant because it says that every single person from the least to the greatest was saying this guy is the power of God. So he's doing something pretty significant. It's probably like, safe to say that he's not just doing Uh, like some magic tricks. Like he's not just, you know, pulling like a Samaritan rabbit out of a Samaritan hat, right? Like it's probably something that is significant enough for the people to start essentially worshiping him as a god. So he's doing something significant. Uh, Like a couple of weeks ago, I was um, walking through some of the fringe and I was walking, uh, I don't even know what road I'm on, I don't know where I am in Adelaide, still learning, but uh, walking down one street that fringe was on and I saw this guy and he was doing some magic tricks Uh, on the side, like one of those guys that does like breathing fire and he was like swallowing knives and he was doing a bunch of other things. And I was looking at, I was like, man, this is pretty impressive. Like I was actually impressed, but at no point did I think, wow, this man is the power of God. Like never at any point did I actually think this guy's doing something that significant, which makes me think, you know, Simon is doing something impressive enough for people to be worshipping him here. There's actually records from a guy uh, called Justin Martyr who was a, a theologian in the, in the second century uh, who actually wrote about how there were, there were people that were worshiping this guy called Simon many years after he died from Samaria, uh, Simon the Magician. So he's doing something that isn't uh, just a, a charlatan magic, he's well, I assume doing something, it's operating in some sort of demonic power that has given him power to perform such signs and wonders. But then we hear that Philip, comes to Samaria, and he's been going amongst the people, and he's been preaching the gospel, and he's preaching the good news, and as people come to faith, they're baptized, men and women baptized in the name of Jesus. And we're told that even Simon himself is believed and gets baptized and continues on with Philip. And we're told that after seeing the the signs and miracles that uh, Philip is performing, Simon is actually amazed at what's happening, which is so interesting. It says that Simon's amazed at Philip, which is the same language that uh, is used of the Samarians being amazed at Simon. So there's a bit of a switch here. Instead of the people being amazed at Simon now, Simon's amazed at Philip and the works that he's doing. Whatever he was doing was impressive, but it's nothing compared to Philip. what Philip is doing in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we get a bit of a picture there of the significance of the, the power of the Holy Spirit's work. No matter the power of the world and the devil, no matter the power that Simon was operating in, whether it was demonic or not, is nothing compared to the power of the Spirit. And it causes even Simon to be amazed at what's happening. But it's important to notice, I think, that the the people of Samaria didn't believe because they saw the signs and wonders. They believed because the preaching of the gospel. They believed because Philip has gone and he's preached the good news about the kingdom of God and about Jesus. And he's doing signs and wonders. And they're a testament to the truth of what he's preached. But it's the gospel message that has transformed the lives of the Samaritans. It's the gospel message that Philip has preached that has changed these people's lives. And they believe in Jesus, come to faith, and are baptised. And then these signs and miracles are a testament to that truth. And we're told uh, just in verse 8, just before we read, that there is much joy in the city because of what uh, has been spoken and because of these signs and wonders. And I think it's really significant before we even move on in the next uh, part of the passage, just take a step back and reflect on how significant it is that these Samaritans are coming to faith. Because this is such a significant moment in the history of the church and such a significant moment in God's plan for salvation uh, to bring the gospel of Jesus to all the nations through Jesus and through the apostles and through his church. And I think we only understand how significant this moment is when we understand uh, the relationship that the Samaritans had with uh, the Jewish people. And if we remember back into chapter one of Acts, it's probably the very first sermon in this series, probably sometime last year, uh, we have the words of Jesus in Acts 1.8. And he says this to the apostles right before he ascends to heaven. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit come upon comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, and now we've hit Samaria and it will move on to the ends of the earth. And this is even more significant considering the historical relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews. Traditionally, like the people of uh, Samaria uh, and Israel, they absolutely hated each other. In the eyes of a Jew, like a Samaritan is like the lowest of the low. They're absolutely, like they refer to them in Scripture as dogs. That's what they view them as. They hate the Samaritans. And they actually had a shared heritage, these two people groups. They actually both had their, traced their lineage back to King David. Um, But the Jews just view the Samaritans as outsiders and view them as Gentiles. And this is not like just some kind of um, like friendly rivalry. Like it's not just like, um, you know, they were rivals on the soccer pitch and then they get off and then they hate each other and like, then they hang out afterwards. That's not what's happening. I, I had one of, my, one of my best mates, um there's a, there's a guy I went to Bible college with and he loves the Lord passionately, but he's a different guy on the soccer pitch. And then uh, when he's on the soccer pitch, he used to actually play against his cousin on an opposite team. And every, almost every game they played against each other, it would end up in a fist fight between him and his cousin. And then they'd just go and get beers afterwards. Like it was like they had this rivalry, but then afterwards they were just mates. Like this, that, and that is just not at all the type of relationship that the Jews and the Samaritans have. It's not like they kind of hate each other a little bit, but they're really friends. Like they are passionately against each other. In one point, um, actually in the book of John, Jesus is speaking to uh, the Pharisees and he's saying some things that they don't like. And one of the insults that they, they give to Jesus, they say, you're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed. It's like as if those two things are comparable. He's like, Jesus, you're saying such lies that you may as well be, you're a demon-possessed or even worse, a Samaritan. Like that's what they're saying, it's crazy. When Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan, there's a, like, there's a reason that he chooses a Samaritan as the hero of the story because when he's talking to Jews, that's just the one person they would never expect to show any kindness. The one person they would think it's absolutely ridiculous that a Samaritan would be kind and gentle to a Jew because of this relationship they had. And it stems back all the way into the Old Testament, back into the the book of 1 Kings uh, and back to the history of the Northern Kingdom. So who's ready for a bit of Bible history? I am. Yeah, nice. Um, so, actually, we're told in um, the Book of One Kings that King David had a, had a son. So King David's kind of like the pinnacle, the, the, the one leader of Israel that was like the king in the glory days of Israel. Uh, he had a son called Solomon. And then Solomon had two sons. And these two sons uh, effectively started a civil war and broke the kingdom into two parts. And then not too long after that, they kind of broke into the northern part and the southern part. And there was a king, uh, his name was Omri, uh, and he's called like the king that did the most evil in the eyes of the Lord in King. So not a good rap for Omri. But he, one of the reasons that he was viewed as so evil was he took the Northern Kingdom and he moved them even further north uh, and he settled in a new capital and made a new city, which is Samaria. And so he went to Samaria and started the Northern Kingdom there. But a little bit later on, the Northern Kingdom was destroyed and there was this remnant of people from that Northern Kingdom of Israel who were carried off by the nation of Assyria. And while they were in Assyria, uh, all these other nations came in, and they started blending with them, and they started uh, mixing you know, ethnically as well as religiously, and they started worshipping the same gods as these other people, and they started marrying these other people. So eventually, these northern Jews who moved to Samaria started to become blended ethnically and blended um, religiously as well. And it started to—and the Jews just hated that, because they said, these are no longer Jews, they've mixed with the other nations— And then a little bit later on, during the reign of Alexander the Great, uh, the Samaritans actually sought permission from him to make a new temple on a, a mount called Mount Gerizim, which was in the north. And they wanted to worship at Mount Gerizim instead of worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple at Jerusalem is like the one place where God's presence was meant to be among his people. So to start worshiping somewhere else is like the ultimate sin in the eyes of the Jews. So that's one of the reasons that caused the Jews to just hate the Samaritans. They'd viewed them as uh, ethnically blended, no longer true Jews, worshipping at this new mountain. And now here in Acts chapter 8, the story we're looking at today, we have Philip, a Jew, taking the gospel of Jesus to the Samaritans. A Jew taking the gospel of Jesus to the Samaritans. And we have people who are in Samaria accepting this gospel and becoming part of the one church of Jesus Christ. These people who are so diverse and hate each other, you couldn't imagine two people further apart coming together because of the gospel of Jesus. Such an amazing moment. Centuries of fighting and centuries of hate being laid down because of Jesus. If you you remember in the book of John, in chapter 4, there's this story where Jesus meets this woman at a well. And this woman is is a Samaritan woman. Jesus has been traveling through Samaria. And they have this conversation, and eventually Jesus starts to say things to her that he really shouldn't know. Uh, He says things about her life that she uh, is shocked that he even has any understanding of. And she perceives that he's a little bit different to the regular guy. And she says this to him from John chapter 4. She says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, which is Mount Gerizim. But you say that in Jerusalem, that is the place where the people ought to worship. And Jesus responds and he says, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And Jesus says, The moment's going to come when we're not going to worship on Mount Gerizim and we're not going to worship in Jerusalem. We're going to worship in spirit and in truth. And that is what is happening now in Acts 8. Jews and Samaritans worshipping together in the same way because of the gospel of Jesus. That moment is now. Such an amazingly significant moment. The gospel going beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea to Samaria, winning people that could never be won to the gospel in the eyes of the Jews. So significant. And we look at this story and we see Simon the magician is one of these people that believes and he's baptised into the name of Jesus. Jesus. But as we continue in the story, something unusual happens when uh, the apostles come. So from chapter 8 and verse 14, it says Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. It was a really, really strange moment. Uh, in the book of Acts. Really strange moment in Scripture. They have believed in Jesus, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit. They've been baptized, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit. Just an interesting thing to note as well uh, in this passage is Luke, the author of Acts, just his affirmation about the personhood of the Holy Spirit as well. He says, for he had not fallen on any of them. Not that it had not fallen on any of them, but he had not fallen on them. The Holy Spirit is a person. But isn't it interesting? They come to faith. They seem to understand the gospel. They're baptized, but the Spirit doesn't get doesn't come upon them until the apostles lay hands. Something significant uh, is happening here when they receive the Spirit, obviously, as well, because when the Spirit comes upon, there's obviously something that is happening that makes Simon look at the Holy Spirit, come upon these people, and want a little bit of what is happening. But we need to ask the question, why did they not simply receive the Holy Spirit when they believed, like the rest of Scripture seems to teach? I got to say this is a really confusing part of scripture and I was thinking about this all week and I was reading a lot about it and uh this is it's unique as well. This is the only time that this ever happens in the book of Acts, but also in Scripture. And uh, over the history of the church, this this passage has actually been abused in a lot of ways, I think, to teach some doctrines that it's definitely not teaching. Um, What seems to happen here is that there's some sort of two-stage conversion to these believers in Acts, the Samaritans. They believe and then later on receive the Holy Spirit. And um, there have been some traditions of uh, Pentecostalism that have use this passage to teach that uh, every Christian must have a two-stage conversion, one at the beginning where they believe in the gospel and then another conversion later on where they receive the Holy Spirit and then speak in tongues or receive some other manifestation of the Holy Spirit's work. Uh, that's not what's happening here in Acts, and uh, it has been abused in the past. Even some Catholic teachers have suggested a similar two-stage conversion where there's the first stage where you believe and the second stage where a bishop must lay hands on you, as the apostles did here, and that's when you truly become a Christian, uh, but neither of which are what Acts chapter 8 is teaching. So I think it is really important to notice that this, uh, the, the Holy Spirit coming upon these believers late is unique in Scripture. This is the only time that it happens. And just because it happens this once doesn't mean we should assume uh, that this is what we should expect today. That's a dangerous way of doing theology. Um, A few years ago, I went on a mission trip um, to Mexico. I think it was in 2013. Uh, And when I was there, I was sharing most of my meals with this one Mexican guy called Carlos, which is like Mexican name, classic Carlos. Um, um, And we had most of our meals together. And he had this thing where every meal we had was like, um, he would have raw broccoli at every meal. Um, and he'd have it like raw broccoli with breakfast and he'd have like with his cereal or something and then raw broccoli with his tacos at lunch and then raw broccoli at night and I was like all right that's just what Mexicans do so I was just like we're just gonna have raw broccoli at every meal so I just went along with it didn't question it didn't think anything was weird until about a week later and then I just noticed that it took a meal a week I know But, ladies, no one else is doing this. And I just assumed that this is just what Mexicans did. I thought this was part of Mexican culture. I was like, you can laugh, it's a stupid thing to believe. But I was like, this is just part of Mexican culture. That's what they do. They just eat raw broccoli at every meal. Sick. Um, That's not the case. And I was made fun of for doing that, which is a, a ridiculous thing for me to think, right? Like, what a ridiculous way of doing, like, you know, understanding culture to see one person doing something and saying, well, this must be the way that everybody else does that. It's a stupid way of learning a culture. But I think that's what's been happening so much with how we've done theology in this book of Acts. We've seen this one thing happening once in Scripture, and we say, well, this is how it always happens. That's a dangerous way of doing theology. Just because it happens once doesn't necessarily mean that it should be paradigmatic for how we experience conversion today. So how can we tell? Well, we need to, you know, how could I have told that uh, not all Mexicans do that? Look at other Mexicans, right? How can we tell that this is paradigmatic or not? Look at the rest of Scripture. We've got to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And as we look through the rest of the book of Acts, we don't see this delay in the Holy Spirit's coming at any other point. And as we read through the New Testament, it's very clear, I mean, Paul never teaches about this, Peter never teaches about this, no one teaches that we should expect to receive the Holy Spirit late. In fact, the New Testament's really clear that coming to faith is a one-time event. We repent, believe, and receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and brings us to maturity. In fact, Scripture is actually really clear that we can't even come to faith unless we have experienced some sort of regenerative work by the Holy Spirit. Like, the Holy Spirit is the one that even enables us to respond in faith. So the the New Testament isn't suggesting uh, that there is some sort of two-stage conversion. That's not what this passage is suggesting. But obviously, we still need to ask the question, then why does it happen here if it's not supposed to happen all the time? I think the answer is tied to the significance of this moment in God's plan for salvation. Like I said, this is the first time the Samaritans have come to faith. This is the first time that we've seen this traditional division between these two people groups come together under one gospel. And I believe that the Spirit's coming uh, is delayed so that all the people that are present there are able to actually witness the apostles affirm that this is a legitimate conversion of the Samaritans. See, the apostles, the the 12 apostles who were uh, the disciples, were God's chosen leaders for the church in this early church period. They spoke with God's voice in a way that nobody else did at the time or does now. And the fact that we have Peter and John, two of these apostles, two of Jesus' closest friends, come down and lay hands on these uh, Samaritans, I think is a a visible affirmation for all those present, that the apostles, God's chosen people, are saying, this is a legitimate conversion. The Samaritans have come to faith. And I actually just think it's hilarious that um, John is one of these apostles, right? Because I don't know if you remember a bit more about John, uh, but in, I think it's in Luke, or maybe it's in John, one of the books, I can't remember. But one time in the Gospels, um, Jesus and his disciples are walking through Samaria, and Jesus sends John and James out to, this John and one of the other apostles, James, out to try and, try and preach to the Samaritans. And they just get absolutely rejected by the Samaritans. And they're coming back to Jesus, and they're like, oh yeah, it didn't work. And John's just like, Jesus, should we just call down some fire on heaven and try and destroy these bad boys? Like, he's just like, why don't we just smoke them kind of thing? And Jesus is like, what are you talking? No, of course not. Like, this is John, right? This is the same guy. The guy who's thought we should just call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans is now coming as an apostle, laying hands, affirming the legitimate conversion of the Samaritan people. got to be humbling for John, right? Um, I, I, love, I love looking at like just the transformation in the disciples after they received the Holy Spirit. John wants to smoke the Samaritans and then he comes in and visibly affirms them. And just like Peter as well, you know, he lies to a little girl because he's too scared to admit that he's with Jesus. And then you know, 40 days later, receives the Holy Spirit, preaches, 3,000 people come to faith. Like significant changes. Uh, I love witnessing that the, the mistakes of the leadership here. But the reason I think in this case, the Holy Spirit is delayed is so that everybody can see that the apostles and through them God is affirming the legitimacy of this conversion of the Samaritans. This is what Jesus said, Jer- Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, now to the ends of the earth. I think it's super significant for us to, to realise this and just to reflect on it for a minute. The church is made up of one people. We all share the same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit. Everyone, regardless of our past, regardless of our you know, socioeconomic background, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our age, That's not what draws us together as the church. It's the same here, it's the same today. The church is not made up of a particular kind of person. The church is not made up of people with a certain ethnic background. It's not made up of people of a certain age, not of a certain demographic. The church is made up of people that recognize that they're sinners in need of a savior. That's the truth of the gospel. The only thing that brings us together is the fact that we were sinners in need of grace. If you told a Jew or Samaritan would come to faith, they would have said, no way, it's impossible. And it's only possible but for the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of what Jesus has done on the cross. And that's the truth today. If, I don't know, if you're here, if you're part of this community and you're not sure whether you belong here, if you don't know whether you, know, you really should be a part of this community, let me say that if you're a sinner in need of grace, then you belong here. You belong here if you've needed to experience the grace of Jesus at work. And that's all of us. People with nothing else in common other than a need for Jesus. Everyone has different stories, uh, but we're all part of the same family. I mentioned before I studied at a, um, a Bible college in Sydney, and um, one of that, that college as well had a, a missional focus. Lots of the, the subjects and the teaching were focused on overseas missions uh, in particular. So this college as well, they had a, a missions conference, which would run every uh, two years, I think. Um, and I remember, I have a really distinct memory of being at one of these missions conferences Uh, while I was a student and just uh, witnessing kind of during worship one time, there was just people from everywhere, and I just looked around um, during worship and just saw like so many different types of people, just, you know, people of different backgrounds, people of different ages, people, uh, some people who didn't even speak English, just worshipping in their own language. And I just remember it just being one of the most significant moments for me, just picturing like this is what the new creation is going to look like. This is People of all backgrounds, the only thing that drew us together was faith in Jesus, worshipping together as one body. It was the most beautiful expression of the unity of the church and the gospel. And I think as we look at this this chapter in Acts, I just love this passage because this is such a significant affirmation of that truth. This is the first time that those who aren't Jewish have become part of the church, affirmed by the apostles, affirmed uh, by Jesus. Witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and in a couple of weeks, we'll get to the, the Gentiles as well. Um, but as, as I said before, the apostles, they lay hands on the Samaritans, and there's obviously some sort of manifestation of the Spirit's presence, because Simon sees it and he wants it. In verse 18, it says, Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of your wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And so it seems like Simon's conversion here isn't actually as legitimate as what it seemed originally. So we're told earlier in the passage that he believes what Philip has preached, and he actually even gets baptized in the name of Jesus. But here, I think we just see really clear evidence that he didn't really understand or he didn't truly uh, believe. Simon sees the power of the Holy Spirit as it comes upon the Samaritans. And it's obviously miraculous. And, I mean, we're not told exactly what happens here. It may have been that they received the gift of tongues. It may have been some other sort of manifestation of the Spirit, uh, just like at Pentecost when, you know, those visible tongues of fire uh, upon those who believe. We're just not told. Um, But there's obviously something that's, you know, visibly happening here. Um, And he sees it and he wants a part of it. And remember Simon, this guy, he's been amazing people with what he's been doing. He's been amazing them with his magic. And then he sees the power of the Holy Spirit and he wants it. And I think he just wants to abuse it. And I think he wants to use it for his own benefit. He wants to add the Spirit as like another trick to his magic show. He sees that these, these people uh, have come to faith, that their apostles have laid hands, something miraculous happening. He's like, I want that. And he says to them, he's like, let me give you money for this. Let me, let me have that power. I want anyone who I lay my hands on to, to have this same power. I think at this like, moment, the heart of his request, I think it's just pride. I think he's, he's been worshipped as a God. Like People worship him. They say, this man is the power of God. And now they're amazed by something else. And I think he sees it and he's like, I need that power back. Let me have it. He wants it back. He's desperate. So he goes up and he tries to offer them money for the Holy Spirit. And Peter just rebukes him. and He just says, may your silver and gold perish with you, for you tried to buy the gift of God with money. And he goes on and he has this you know, long rebuke of Simon. But um, I think he gets right to the heart of the issue. And it's that Simon has just completely understood what the gift of the Holy Spirit is about. He views the Holy Spirit as a means to power, as an add-on to what he was already doing. He doesn't understand that the gospel means that everything changes. It's not just a, an add-on to an existing worldview. You can't just come to faith in Jesus and keep what you are doing before. The gospel is about lives being transformed because of what Jesus has done, leading us to serve and worship him only. I think what's happening here is that Simon, he, we're told that he does believe. So there must be at least to some level, and even just an intellectual assent to what the Philip was preaching. He believes, but I think he doesn't really get it. He believes, but he wants to add it just to what he's already doing. He's acting like his Samaritan forefathers who had a blended worship of God. He's trying to blend the worship of God with his already existing worldview. But he got baptized and he believed. Super confusing. But it becomes here it comes clear here that Peter, as Peter, you know, just rebukes him hard that he didn't really understand. I think this reveals something that is true today for us as well, and that is it's po- possible uh, to, to know a lot about Jesus and to understand the gospel at an intellectual level and it never reach your heart. It's possible even to believe in the gospel at an intellectual level and not to get to your heart. There's a difference between knowing Jesus As your Lord and Savior, and knowing about Him. There's a difference between knowing who Jesus is and knowing about what He did and knowing Him. Simon knew about the gospel, but it never got to his heart. His heart is revealed when he asks if he can buy the Holy Spirit. He doesn't get it. I think this is something so important for us to know is that not everyone who confesses the name of Jesus will be saved. Not everyone who confesses Jesus as their lord has a regenerate heart has received the holy spirit when you accept Jesus as your lord and savior and you enter into relationship with him it changes everything you can't worship Jesus and something else you can't blend faith in Jesus with your old ways like Simon tried to do does that ring true for you now what do you have going on in there? do you have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of something else does your life look just the same as it did before you came to faith in Jesus? Is Jesus just another add-on for you? Is it just something you've, you've tacked onto your existing worldview or has it changed everything? Has it transformed your whole life? Do you want Jesus or do you just want what you can get from him? Because I wonder as well whether we're a little bit like Simon sometimes, and we just seek after what is spectacular and we seek after what is miraculous and amazing, and we seek after it because it benefits us rather than just seeking after Jesus because we know him and we love him and we want him. There are so many people in the history of church um, in the history of the church and even now, that have sought after Jesus just for the pursuit of their own fame, people that have abused the gifts of the Spirit for their own glory uh, and not for the glory. Of Jesus, and I know for me, like this is this is true of me. There's so many times where, um, you know, I, I've chased after the appearance of knowing Jesus rather than actually knowing Him. I've chased after seeking uh, to look holy because of other people's perception of me, and not actually seeking true holiness. Care more about the, I don't know, the perceived health of my relationship with Jesus than the actual health of my relationship with Jesus. It's so easy for us to do. So, how can we tell? Like, how can you tell if you've got a real faith? How do you tell? We need to check our hearts. And I think the way we tell is in transformed lives. If the gospel has truly transformed us, if we've understood the gospel, and if we've received the Holy Spirit, then it has to lead to transformation in our lives. The fruit of a true relationship with Jesus is the fruit in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm, sure that and I'm not saying that you know, it's going to be an immediate transformation. Of course, we're still going to fall into sin. And when you fall into sin, you don't have to lose your assurance. You don't have to question your faith. If you've received the Holy Spirit, then He won't leave you. And we don't have just the checklist of things that we have to, to tick off. But over time, we should experience growth and fruit. the fruit of the Spirit. If we've received the Spirit, we should, re- we should demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. There's another one. Faithfulness, that's the one. We should experience the, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives if we have received the Holy Spirit. We should be chasing after the fruit of the Spirit, and not just chasing after the spectacular aspects of the Spirit, not just chasing after what will make us be perceivable, well, but what will make Jesus be perceivable well to others and demonstrate the fruit of the gospel in our lives. This is the heart of Simon's problem. He thought he could buy the Holy Spirit. He thought he could add it on to his existing faith, because he cares more about himself than about Jesus, and he doesn't truly know him. But the beauty of the gospel is that, it's, it's not about us earning our way to God with how we act. It's not about the way that we perform before Jesus. The, gospel, uh, the reality of the gospel is that we've received grace in Jesus, not because of what we've done, but because of what He did for us on the cross, and it's because of Him that we now have experienced, we can now experience salvation and grace, the finished work of Jesus. Simon didn't get that. He didn't understand that you can't buy what the gospel offers to understand that the gift of the Holy Spirit is exactly that. It's a gift given to us by God, not something we can earn. And if we, if we forget that, if we, if we start to um, you know, run away from that, we've got to bring ourselves back to the Scriptures, reassess our hearts, bring ourselves back to the truth of the Gospel. The story in Acts 8 as we close is, is just one of God's mission going forward, one of God's mission uh, going forward despite all the worldly expectations, despite what anybody would have said. Nobody would have believed the gospel could go to Samaria and that people could come to faith, but it did. There's a reason why we called this uh, series in Acts Unstoppable, because God's plan is unstoppable. There's nothing that can stop his plan going forward. The gospel is preached, people come to faith, they receive the Holy Spirit. Human barriers, nothing before God, and the church becomes one unified people, and that's still true of today. One unified people with one unified heart of obedience to God. Many people of different backgrounds, of different demographics, part of the one body of Christ. And all people have responded to the same gospel in the same way. And that's the picture we have Access Acts. That's the picture we have today, pursuing the gifts of the Holy Spirit, pursuing the fruit of the Spirit as a response to the gospel. So that's my prayer for, for us at, Light, at North and for Sea Light at Glenelg and uh, for the church in general. So why don't you join me as I pray for us now in response to to this. Father, we thank you so much uh, for this story in Acts. Lord, we thank you for your word and that you speak to us. Lord, we thank you for um, what it it means uh, for us now. Lord, we thank you that uh, the gospel did go out. Uh, to Samaria, Lord, despite how impossible it seemed uh, to the people at the time, Lord. And we, we thank you so much for that, Lord. Thank you that we are actually the fruit of the gospel going beyond uh, the nation of Israel, Lord, and that we here have experienced the gospel because of your plan, Lord. And we, we thank you so much for the gift of salvation that we've received, Lord. Thank you so much that uh, we receive uh, salvation not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done, Lord. And we, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that He is the guarantee of our inheritance, Lord, and that. Uh, Lord, we just, we just want to be pursuing you. We just want to know you more. We don't just want to know about you. Lord, we want to experience more of you, Lord. Please transform us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to grow uh, in the fruit of the Spirit, Lord. Help us to chase after you with everything that we have. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.